Good morning, this is Kieran Goddard with you until one o'clock with News Talks on the record. If you want to contact the programme, 53106 is the text number. It will cost you 30 cent or as always, you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goddard. We've lots coming up on the show today, including a discussion after 12 about nationalism. Of course, a bad thing at the moment, if you believe all the headlines. Though some say it's a, a basic need to feel part of a community, a national community, imagine though they might be. We're also going to be talking about a universal basic income and why today layman's would be simply regarded as too big to fail. It wouldn't be allowed to happen. But before all of that, with me in studio to talk through the stories making headlines in today's papers is Dr. Lona Duffy, GP in Monaghan, Medical Director of the Northeast Doctor on Call Service, Gary Murphy, who's Professor of Politics in DCU, and Dr. Jennifer Cavanagh, Law Lecturer in WIT. As Jennifer pointed out, I would you say two doctors and a professor is that yeah. what you have in studio? Poor lowly old me here as well, trying to muddle my way through. So have sympathy on me. Uh, Gary, um, are the Cork ladies going to rob the... All-Ireland today, like the Cork ladies robbed the All-Ireland last weekend? I take it back, you mean, I think, Karen. Um Well, I know Dublin are odds on favourites, and probably rightly so, have been very impressive, uh, both in winning the All-Ireland last year, where they dismantled Mayo in the final, and have been very impressive all year. beat Cork uh, earlier in the league. Uh, but Cork ladies football is... Uh the force of nature really mm. They're tremendous uh, team spirit great players tremendous forward line this year and I think anyone who goes and apparently there's 50,000 going will yeah, be huge in, crowd huge crowd will be uh, in for a treat I was at the Dublin Galway football semi-final a couple of weeks ago and there was barely 50,000 at that which is quite extraordinary when you uh, when you think of it yeah that's actually, that is amazing Yeah, I think that, that semi-final had the worst attendance yeah and I was there also the following day from Monaghan and Tyrone where the atmosphere was better uh, than for Dublin Galway where it seemed a kind of a procession that Dublin would inevitably win a bit like the final yeah. uh, but I think today we are probably in for a crack and a testament to the uh, to the uh, to the spirit of Gaelic for women's Gaelic football Yeah it is in root health the, the ladies camogie final last weekend was, wasn't it wasn't a great game yeah, so I know obviously I'm a little bitter about how it ended but anyway well, it no, actually well, wasn't I, I uh, watched that game and I mean the final three certainly looked very soft but there was some good analysis the following day in the papers that people were looking at it in terms of uh, hurling rules and camogie rules and hurling rules They're are different. different although people don't think they are and so I had some sympathy for the ref he did seem extraordinarily fussy the last two frees certainly if I was in your seat I would be very upset um, <laughs> but of course being from Cork uh, and being six points up with eight minutes to go in an All-Ireland semi-final and on and the back of some dubious decisions not to take any way away from Limerick's victory in the All-Ireland uh, these things are part of sport yeah, they are looking, and I don't feel bitter at all, really. I don't. Deep down, I've got over it. It's, it's a week at this stage. Um, look, before we get into anything else, I should let people know at home what's on the front pages of today's papers. Uh, the Sunday Independent are leading with their own story. The real cost of living soars. Uh, families with children have been hit by huge increases in the cost of living over the last five years. And this is analysis that they've carried out on the CSO Consumer Price Index. Uh, they also have a story on the front page, Cabinet in Social Housing, Class Row. Class war row, uh, something we might come back to in a few minutes' time. The Sunday Times leads with RTE pulls Late Late Clip over Garda Scum Slur. Uh, the RTE uh, Late Late Show on Friday night had a panel wherein uh, John Connors, uh, one of the guests on it, referred to uh, Gardy, who were involved in that um, eviction in Dublin during the week, as scum. It's been pulled from the playback, you can't see it, uh, but a lot of fallout from that online, certainly after the show went out. Uh, 
the Irish made on Sunday unmasked and then attacked. This is in relation to the same story. Gardaí claimed they wore balaclavas that eviction to prevent online abuse. Within 66 hours, this Garda, and there's a photo of the guard with the balaclava on, was identified and subjected to sinister vitriol on Facebook. And the Sunday Business Post leads with Pat Kenny. What RTE did could be perceived as a cover-up behind the front line. And this is an exclusive story they have uh, based on documents they've seen from RTE, the investigation that was carried out there into the frontline debate during the last presidential election, including an email they have that Pat Kenny sent as uh, as part of that fallout. A story on the front page as well of the Sunday Business Post, Higgins surges to commanding 67% lead. They have uh, opinion polls, political opinion polls in the paper today, which we'll come back to in a little bit of time. But I just want to mention one, and it is the presidential one. Higgins at 67%, Sean Gallagher at 15%, and then Gavin Duffy at 6 Joan Freeman at 3 uh, The others who are still hoping to get a nomination, some of them, none of them polling above uh, 1%. So a bit worrying for Sean Gallagher. There were some of his supporters claiming they had internal polling uh, that put him ahead of Michael D. Higgins once transfers were taken into account, but you wouldn't say that based on these figures. It's Michael D. Higgins' to lose. Uh, we'll get back to the presidential election in just a few minutes, but we want to get straight into the first topic because on the front pages it's mentioned of quite a few papers, it's inside all of the papers, and it's the continuing uh, fallout from uh, the, the Scali report. Uh, and one aspect that's been picked up on in quite a bit of the coverage today is Ilona a medical misogyny the idea of medical misogyny you're on misogynists doctors oh I don't know I, I suppose you're right in a way the the kind of the criticism of doctors and and medics really has come to the fore in 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 the reporting of of the Scali report and I suppose to start off it's wonderful that we have a report that actually has been so comprehensively done despite all the difficulties that Dr Scally had in accessing information from the HHC etc. And he has come up with 50 recommendations and I think the big thing now is that we've got to ensure that all 50 recommendations are acted on. With regards to the medics and misogyny in medicine, some of the comments that are reported by him are just shocking. They're <coughs> awful and nothing, there's no way to condone those and there's no way that anyone should accept comments like that. But I suppose it opens up the picture of, you know, wh- what was the role of the medics in, in giving this information mm. to these women? And I think that was so poorly handled and it is covered in a number of, of articles in the papers. Morris Geary talks about it and, um, and also Maeve Sheehan. And the reality is that the doctors who were mandated and given the task of giving this information, and again, they were told, you know, use it as you see fit to, were the doctors that were treating the women for their cancer. And I think that's all wrong because these women were building up a relationship with the doctors, dealing with the trauma of being diagnosed with the cancer, having to come to term, to term with that. And again, it's a bit like a bereavement thing. You go through all of the cycles, the anger, the denial, the acceptance. And then in the middle of all of that, the doctor who's trying to talk to them about their treatment being kind of advised that they need to tell them, well, actually, you know, there is a chance this cancer could have been picked up before it reached the level that it was. And it's all wrong that they were given that task to do. And even as me as a GP, if I'd been given that role to do, it would have been a very hard one without all the information. And seeing how little information... Who who should have done it then, though? Well, I think it was the role of Cervical Check to do this. And now we know that Cervical Check and the HSE have set up groups in each area, in each CHO area, and they're meeting with the affected women and they're meeting them individually and talking to them. 
And that's the way it should have been at the beginning. But I, I actually think there's so many ways that it could have been done better. Like have somebody from Cervical check who had all the information, would be able to answer all the questions with the woman, go through their screening history, go through how, you know, how smears are examined, where their smear is examined, what follow up, what investigations are being done. And also have somebody that they know and they trust. And that should have been one of their doctors, either one of their treatment oh, so consultants. So a doctor and someone from Cervical well, check. I, I think that would have been a better way to do it. And Maurice Geary talks about the role of GPs. I mean, we're someone that deals with, with patients through all their health needs. And, and perhaps it, it could have been done that way, asking GPs to get involved. And it's not that I want to increase our workload, but I do feel that, you know, they needed somebody they could trust, but they also needed somebody who could give them the information. And the reality is that for the consultants who were being told these results are in a patient's file, you can decide whether you think it's appropriate or not. Some consultants may have felt that actually the woman was in the middle of their chemotherapy and they're feeling so sick, they're feeling so rotten. Is this the time to give them this information? Other consultants probably struggled with how do I do it? What do I do? And let's not forget that our consultants have a gagging clause in their contracts, meaning that they can't speak out against the HSE. So, you know, do you give this information and then you have the woman who you're treating, you've built up a relationship, become angry with you because you're communicating the information. Is that not the paternalism that is also referred to? The idea that the consultant is deciding, you know what, I don't think it's the right time for you to get this information. But all these women... is it, yeah. is it the consultant's place, really, well, to decide it, that? It was the HSC and cervical checks place to ensure that these women were given this in a, in a safe environment with time to have all of the information available. So as that consultant being asked loads of questions by the patient, well, how could this happen? Where was my smeared and what was done? They may have not have had all those answers. So you're right. I think the consultant's... You know, obviously, some consultants could have done it in a better way, but I do feel that the whole process should have been undertaken by cervical check and the HSE in a formal standardised way with these women getting the supports and getting the information that they required and that they're still in some cases struggling to get. Uh, Jennifer, what was your take of the the entire, I suppose, fallout, not the entire process, everything going back to April 25th and the Mm -hmm. day that Vicky Phelan settled that case and and it all kicked off, but really since Wednesday, since the report was launched and and the analysis of it. Yeah, well, it's it's a very good point, as uh, Ilona has said, that it it goes through everything. It gets to the point on the issues. There's no real fudging or things like that that's going on. But with the whole medical misogyny thing, it kind of shows that there's a changing relationship between doctors and patients that back in the day, your doctor said, this is what you had, take those tablets, end of story. Nowadays, well, first of all, everyone goes on to Google and we all think we're going to die to begin with because that's all the internet will ever tell you. But I mean, I've had issues with doctors where they've said I'd, I had one thing and I said, actually, no, I have this thing. And it was actually ridiculous because uh, they were having such a fight with me. I said, right, take a swab. And the lab said I was right, which was which the doctor did not see coming at all. So it's a lot different now that it's more of a partnership between the doctor and the patient. They're working together as opposed to the doctor tells you it's this, take that, end of story. So I think that it's going to be something for, for good anyway that doctors have had this highlighted. And just on the point about information going to patients, there's still provisions in the legislation surrounding doctor-patient information, say the Data Protection Act, that says a doctor can stop you from getting your file if they don't think it's in your best interests. Now, I have no idea how that sort of stuff can still be stood over in this day and age, because if you want your medical file, you should be able to get it. Now, there's probably things you might not understand, things that may be phrased 
say the communications between doctors that you can sit down and have your doc have a chat with your doctor about it when mm. you're getting your file. But that's one thing that should be going now at this stage. Well, can I, I have to say, it's not the doctor decides you don't get it. And having been involved in this and doing some medical education with GPs on this, you know, there are certain things, maybe psychiatric illnesses, certain things, if if there are third party references, maybe, you know, somebody ringing to talk about a patient with psychiatric mm. illness, that that part might be better redacted in case it breaks down a patient's relationship with their sister or their mm. family member. It's actually not the doctor who says, no, they're not getting this. That's going to be the data protection officer in the HSC. And I think you absolutely raise an important point. These women couldn't access their notes. Their solicitors mm. couldn't access their notes. And where where is the data commissioner on that? I mean, somebody yeah. should be taking action on that. But if it's your local GP, it's not going to be the data protection officer in the HSE. Yeah. It's going to be somebody making a call in your local surgery. Well, if you're a medical card patient, actually, it's the HSE mm. because they own your notes. Yeah. And but if you're private. Private. Well, I, I think, you know, things are changing. And you're mm. right. There are still doctors who are poor communicators and do not interact in an appropriate way and in a good way with patients. And I suppose it's back to the thing. We're also looking at doctors, maybe who are high point achievers, who aren't good interactors. And that's part of your GP training, not your GP training, your medical training now is communication mm. skills and what, understanding. What, what does that have to do with anything, being a high achiever? Well, no, it's not like, that, but I, I, I would say to you... There one, why can't one just have a touch of humanity because one is a high achiever? Yeah, I'm because perhaps somebody is just... See, now I don't feel too bad so. that I'm not, that, that, <laughs> no, that I'm not one of the doctors or professors no, in no, the room. No, no, but what I would say is things are changing, that we're now looking at things like, you know, with the HPAT, part of that is to try and look at personality types and get people who maybe we're looking at more than just black and white points, people who are just... Maybe they should people. follow the Fine Gael thinking and give them drama lessons. Perhaps, but also, <laughs> but also part of their training is communication. And I do agree things are changing and things have to continue to change where it mm. is like you say a partnership where people can ask questions and be heard and not and that doctors learn not to feel that as a challenge to them or as, as somebody questioning it should be what something positive doing. you want it to take control be, of absolutely. your health one on the HPAT I, 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 as, a, as a professional educator for like over two decades I still can't understand the HPAT how it is that doctors are so unique that they're the only ones who have to have a personality test about the subject they take that in my view it is quite extraordinary but that's probably not the, the, the issue at hand today there's a certain arrogance about the medical profession both Eilish Hanlon and uh, Brenda Power talk about it today in the papers and uh, I mean Scally report as far as I can see it's, it's very detailed it's very impressive but no one is held to account no one is but, named but it's not no, the no, doctors no, to be held to account you know, it has to be cervical check and the HSE I they think that set up a system that Scally says was doomed mm. to fail from the beginning so yes we can question the doctors and how they communicated results they didn't read those smears they didn't make any errors or anything going on in that yes how no, they I, communicated I, 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 I one thing yeah. but back to the fact mm. is that how could we have a system where smears were going out to other countries and we now know that those smears were going into a laboratory that was mandated to do them but they were going out the back door and being sent to other laboratories. How was that not picked up on? How were there no other reviews? The cervical check went out in 2011, 2014, according to one of the articles, and didn't go back again and didn't follow up on the problems that they saw, the questions that they asked and the retraining that they asked for senior technicians in one of the laboratories in the States. None of that was followed up on. cervical smear is obviously very important. There's some very good pieces, one by John Crone, about the importance of it. Uh, And I I think I would accept that completely. And I think it's really important uh, that that is taken on into the the future. But there is Certainly a, a type of, you know, God complex among some medics that, that this report clearly highlights and that that needs to be addressed going forward. The medical consultants have been extraordinarily powerful lobbyists in this state since its foundation. 
you go back to the mother and child scheme, much misunderstood, but consultants were at the heart of blocking that. The whole range of things with co-location, use of private hospitals for public patients and vice versa. You know, these things need to be addressed going forward. And this is an opportunity, in my view, to take it now. There is criticism. You, you mentioned uh, one of the pieces in the paper, um, I, oh, Dr. Morris Garrett's piece as well um, today, where he talks about uh, the silence in the medical community in the few days after after the report. He talks a, a little bit about and also uh, that we've got three unions for a tiny little group that they're all kind of pulling in different directions that really and they only really kind of engage their members about money issues, that it's not just kind of the management and administration of cervical check that needs to be overhauled. It's the kind of the management administration of of the medical profession and of how they're represented, of how ye as doctors are represented by your representative bodies. Well, you're right. I think the silence was kind of surprising, but I think in part that was because probably people were really shocked. And I mean, when I mean people, I mean medics were really shocked by some of the comments that, that are in Scully's report. I mean, there's, there's no defending those. And I think maybe perhaps that put people, put medics on the back foot. I think with regards to managing us, that's what the Medical Council is there for. And remember, it has a lay majority and that's deliberately to ensure that, the, that, that we're not in any way biasing positively towards ourselves. So I think that's there. It's, it's been made easier and easier for people to put in a complaint and people know that they can do that and, and are actively encouraged in some cases by the HSC to do that if they feel the mistake has been made by a doctor. And sometimes I might say perhaps to deflect and blame from themselves and and again back to this we still have answers to be answers to be asked and answers to be given questions to be asked and answers to be given with regards to how we've ended up in this state and where we are going forward with cervical check because it is damaged and we have to ensure it's not cervical screening is so important it's worldwide it's been shown to save lives both here mm. and around the world we've also got to push ahead with our HPV vaccinations and 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 absolutely seek change with regards to how our medics interact with their doctors how communication is given to them and their rights with regards to access to notes the the issue of CPL outsourcing the the and CPL don't do don't don't review Irish smears anymore. But when they were, they were outsourcing them to these other labs. One in uh, Hawaii and another couple in uh, other places in Texas, and I think one in Florida. Uh, almost immediately uh, on Wednesday, there was kind of speculation that these all these labs would kind of be below par or something like this. And it, it reminded me of the speculation when all of this broke that these US labs were kind of going to be below par. There's every possibility that once Gabriel Scali looks into these labs, he'll find look. These, they weren't contracted to, to, to subcontract. They shouldn't have been doing it. It should have been reviewed. But actually, I've been to all these labs now and they're perfectly fine labs. This was just an issue of having the resources to do them. There's no kind of smoking gun here that, you know, that, that they meet all the protocols that there are. And, and then where do we go? And, you know, kind of, we've surely kind of gone down that rabbit hole as far as it's going to lead us. This idea that the US labs, uh, you know, that there was, I suppose, an, an assumption that there'd be a problem with the US labs. And then when there wasn't in the Scali report, now there's an well, assumption that there's going to be a problem with these labs that sub, were subcontracted. And there's every possibility that there won't well, be. Well, actually, Dr. Scali hasn't, he, he said that he, he has confidence in the system as it's going ahead at the moment. But he has said that uh, it is the College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists who are doing the clinical review and will be reviewing things like the smears. However, we've got to remember, I mean, there are different things like in the States, in the US, 
the labs normally the screening process there that they have annual women have yearly smears so therefore you know there, it, it may be a little bit more of a lightweight look at the smear than it may be here in the UK and in Ireland where we're on three yearly smears apart and that's from, the College of Obstetrics and Gynecology they're going to be reviewing that. that but we can't if smears were being outsourced to other labs we still have no guarantees that they were meeting the standards that were required under the contract that they were given. And the reality is they were given a contract and we now know that there weren't adequate reviews of that contract and the standards and there should have been random double checking of smears like we have here in Ireland now. So every x-ray report that's read is reread by another consultant. I'm not saying every smear had to be reread, but there should have been random samples taken, brought back to Ireland with those smears to be reread, Ireland, England, wherever, so that there was a double check facility to see where there are patterns of abnormalities being missed. Uh, Gary, was there a, a little sense that uh, and, and huge praise for Gabriel Scali during the week, but mm. that there was a bit of fudging in it when you talked about n- no accountability, that ultimately no one was held responsible, no names were mentioned. He specifically in this press conference said there's nobody working. Despite all the criticism, he, this was his exact line, there's nobody working in cervical check today who should be removed from their job from what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, like it, it does sound like the fear that people had about a commission of investigation was that you had five years and at the end of it, there'd be a report talking about cultures and systems. Yeah. And like uh, we do have a report now that talks about cultures. Well, and indeed. Systems. And, it, and, and if there was a, a tribunal of inquiry or whatever, and people would be named and then they would legal up and this would drag on yeah. for two decades, like the Moriarty Tribunal or the Mahan Tribunal. And nobody wants that. I mean, these, these are people's lives. So, like, you know, it is it's really important that we get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. Uh, from what I've read of the, the, the Scali report, I mean, it is very straightforward. It, it doesn't fudge much. But I, I suppose my point being that the fact that nobody at all has been named and, and going to your point out, no, no one should be removed from office. And also removing people from office isn't always the solution, of course, either. Mm. Um, and, you know, and people do have constitutional rights to their good name and for protection. Uh, but I really think this is an opportunity now for a root and branch review of how, you know, the, the health service works in this country. I mean, we had uh, the old health boards, then we had the HSC. HSC has been limping along, you know, without with really very little improvement. The winter is coming. We're, we'll be in this studio in a few months' time. The hospital waiting list will probably be up. I, I think this is an opportunity that we have a root and branch review of, you know, how, how, how health and the politics of health works in this country. All right. Look, on that note, we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, Ilona, Jennifer and Gary going nowhere. On the record. On News Talk. So that's right, you are listening to On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you here until one o'clock today. Alona Duffy, Jennifer Kavanagh and Gary Murphy are with me in studio. And we want to turn our attention now to a story that, as I mentioned, is on the front page of a lot of papers with the Mail on Sunday lead with unmasked and then attacked. Gardaí claimed they wore balaclavas at eviction to prevent online abuse. Within 66 hours, this guard, and it's a picture of a guard on duty on Tuesday wearing a balaclava, was identified and subjected to sinister vitriol on Facebook. Uh, there's stories around this uh, on the front pages of other papers papers. I mentioned John Connors on the Late Late on Friday night uh, referring to these Gardaí as scum. That's on the front page of the Sunday Times that RTE have pulled that from the playback uh, option. Uh, Drew Harris, the new commissioner, has of course criticised, well he's criticised the decision to allow Gardaí to wear the uh, flame retardant masks as they were referred to uh, without wearing helmets that they usually should go with. Balaclavas I think is what we're all just going to call them because that's what they look like and that's uh, even what some Gardaí are referring to them as. But uh, that story that's on the front page uh, of the mayor Jennifer like does it in some way justify the Garda's decision 
Well, it was probably the reason why they, they wore the, the ski master balaclavas to begin with. But as Jean Kerrigan said, the way that, that some people are trying to excuse it, it was more like a fashion faux pas, that they didn't wear the helmets over it. But I mean, if they're doing any gangland operations or any terrorist mm. operations, they generally to, do wear masks so they don't get identified. But I suppose it was the image of the guards were in the balaclavas and the lads who came in from the private company were in the balaclavas as well. As we know with most things in Ireland, it's not the actual event that causes the problem, it's the way it's handled. Even 1916, the fact that they went into the GPO, but then they shot the lads afterwards. I, I think, <laughs> I mean, Gary will probably pick me up on this, but generally it's the reaction, the way it's handled is going to be more of the problem than what actually the incident that caused it. Yeah, is that a fair point, Gary, that it was how this was how this was handled rather than the eviction itself it was you know the idea that this is like enforcing a court order in this case it's a civil matter the Gardaí were only there in terms of any disturbances to the peace yeah, but that order. it really looked for all intents and purposes the way they kind of lined across the street in front of the house that they were there on behalf of the owner of the building it did it, it, it just looked wrong um, it's an optics issue we'll it is, that way. well it's clearly an optics issue now there is a very serious issue behind it which is obviously uh, vacant housing and, and housing crisis that we have in the state. There are something like 96,000 vacant properties excluding uh, holiday homes in this state and we have a we have a homeless crisis I, you know the government accepts that I think every political observer uh, accepts it and but I would know I would agree with Jennifer I wouldn't disagree uh, but I think one of the issues is you know in, in this truly awful use of language about calling Gardaí scum and the Garda scum you know Gardaí's are public representatives protecting the state it's a really important job no one goes into it uh, lightly and there are grave risks as the GRE and the AGSI and other rightly keep uh, telling us I mean these individuals who wore those balaclavas uh, during the week they didn't have any choice I presume that was the way they were told to go by their superior or officer and I think this sort of baseness of language you know that Mr Connors used in the Late Late Show on Friday night and he didn't back down he has put it I think online and is accused already of some sort of um, moral cowardice but I, I, I just find it uh, outrageous Gardy, of course might, like everyone else must be held uh, to account and, ha- and we have a whole myriad of agencies holding Gardy to account maybe too many uh, if anything but I think the sort of baseness uh, of which that is a classic example doesn't serve anybody uh, uh, you know, well. And uh, there are a number of editorials in today's paper talking about, you know, we need to tackle the homeless crisis. We don't need to tackle the optics. Well, yeah. maybe we do, but we need to tackle the crisis itself. You know, we saw Tony Fahey last week talking about we need to build more homes. And we do. And the, the state needs to do it. The government needs to do it. And I think that's the real, that's the real, um, that's what we really should be taking from this whole episode. Uh, there is, uh, Ilona, in the paper as well, talk about the, uh, the housing crisis and around the issues around, not not just focusing on the optics. Uh, and Leisha Nalen in the Sunday Times on page 17, housing protesters raised the roof. And she's been speaking to those involved in this Take Back the City uh, movement. And they can themselves in one sentence to both Nelson Mandela and Austin Curry, um, which I'm sure Austin Curry would have loved to have heard himself and compared to Nelson Mandela. Um, but do, do you have sympathy for this movement as a, as a way of, you know, look, they don't really seriously think that they themselves are going to kind of occupy all these homes consistently and hand them over to people. It's a way of highlighting the issue of vacant properties. Is it the right way of going about it? Is it the right way of going about it? I mean, 
when you read some of the stories and you read some of the bits in the paper, people who struggle to find a place and, you know, there was one story actually in yesterday's paper of a woman and, and her kids and passed an empty house and had just been evicted from the place she was in that she was renting and moved into it. And you hear these personal stories. I think it makes it seem like it's something that is reasonable at the time to them. I mean, we know it's not legal, but the reality is that it is highlighting the issue. And then it allows people like the Peter McVeary Trust to hear their voice. And they're actually stating that we should have an empty property tax. And that's something they've been advocating for ages and that there's been no traction on it. Maybe that's where we need to be going now. We need to be looking at what are the solutions. I do think... um, Okay, it's awful. We can't have our guard. Our guard are there to protect us. And that's what we mustn't forget in all of this. That is their role. They're there to protect us, the public. I think what went wrong with this is that it was deemed that they were there to protect gangster looking guys um, who arrived in a van that was untaxed. And, you know, it's all of those <laughs> well, kind of things. they've taken off all those details so the so van would... couldn't be identified. But I mean, Elaine Byrne is trying to make a comparison between the one in Gorsale and Kalini yeah. and the, the one that, that has just happened. But they were two completely different evictions. Gorsale, totally. the guy, was actually still in the house and they were trying to get him out. Whereas the Yeah, the for all the one, criticism of, of the O'Donnells, it was a family home. Yeah. And, and it, they are, they are, you are comparing apples and oranges. You don't often see Gardaí and Balaclavas assisting not, someone yeah. being removed from a family home yeah. on foot of a or court a farm order. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, what about the, the idea that... Um, uh, a, a vacant property, Jennifer, like, uh, and and using it to so- solve some of the problems in the housing crisis, and it won't solve them all, despite the, the sheer mm. volume of it. You mm. know, it's, it's yeah. one part of it, and we yeah. shouldn't pretend it, it's all of it. Uh, but there are those on the other side who would say, "Well, look, you know, there, there's very kind of clear constitutional rights around private property." Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, no constitutional right is absolute, and we have compulsory purchase orders and that sort of thing. And oh. see, now they all have to be done at market value. Okay. Back in the eighties, the case law wasn't as clear on it, so they could come in with a price and say right that's it or we're sending the bulldozers now from all the 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 roads that have been built it's very very clear you have to give market price but they can use the cpos to go into derelict properties that never mind could house families they're structurally derelict they're a hazard i mean i know of some in waterford where it's responsible for an outbreak of feline hiv because there's just feral cats living there and it's infecting everyone's you know little moggier that the, that's the family pet. But I mean, it is ridiculous passing these these houses that are just absolutely abandoned. They're nobody's family home because we're very strong. But it's a deliberate reason to let them become derelict like that because then it lowers the market value of the houses on either yeah, side. It means that people who are in a house where there's damp coming through the walls or rats coming yeah. from that empty house next but door But when they're derelict and they're not a family home, they don't have the same protection when they're literally being sat on okay. just as an asset, waiting for it to go down mm. so they can do whatever they want with planning. But the thing is, it's not just a homeless crisis, it's a housing crisis. And if you've uh, had any dealings with planning, I mean, we've already had St Anne's Park and Rohini, we all want houses everywhere, but not over there, because there's geese. It's like the Pope's visit. We want all the homeless out of the Phoenix Park, but not the deer. So we'll house the animals, but we're not going to house the people. The state, like the state, has taxation powers, and there there is a lot to be said. I think for exploring this vacant 
uh, property tax. Uh, it's taken tax as much as it wants. I mean, mm-hmm. way back in the 80s, there was taxation rates into the 70%. You know, the state can do all sorts of things without trampling on constitutional rights to, to ownership of a property. The state doesn't a, like taxing capital, though. We see that, like, property, they're yeah. actually going to now to work in fear of the possibility of a general election around the corner. Going back to they're the going Kenny, to start reducing yeah, Going back to the taxes. Kenny report of the early 1970s, you know, in terms of, of taxation of property. But um, we are in a crisis. This has been going on mm. uh, for a long time. There's no end of it in sight. We need sort of innovative policy uh, solutions. That would certainly be one. Of course, the state doesn't like taxing property. And, and we look at the polls of Fine Gael, very strong, always seen as the sort of property class. Although I mentioned this once, I think, on this show, and I got a irate email from a, 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 a landless Fine Gaeler in Roscommon who said he grew up... Uh, you know, penniless and still didn't have much, but believed in Fine Gael. And there's that, that's an interesting story today about Fine and McGrath, Michael Ringspat and Cabinet. Well, I was going to ask class. you about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting story. It been out there. They've know. broken Cabinet confidentiality. Well, so if we want to go back to constitutional yeah. rights again, you've got an issue a, there. Yeah, but it's very interesting. But thank um, God they keep breaking that. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but my point was being that the state can tax yeah, and it can tax mm-hmm. different types of property, and it does. I mean, it does tax different types of of property, and I think that is that's a solution that really needs to be uh, to be examined carefully. And I would, you know, and I have no influence, but I would encourage her or Joan Murphy and his planning officials to do something on that. And front. even under planning law, you could say somebody leaving a house go derelict is actually breaking planning because if you want to make any sort of change to the front of your property that's over a certain amount of square footage or whatever's in the Planning and Development Acts, you need planning. So if you're going to leave the front of your house run down that much, it should be a planning issue anyway. And between all the different state agencies that are there anyway looking at properties, say the Valuation Office, the Planning Departments mm. of local authorities, now the New Land Development uh, Agency, it should yeah, be very easy. Is that the agency easy. then to start CPOing vacant property? Well, the thing it. is, I would hope that whoever's writing that legislation is going to link it in with the Land Registry because that would report to justice. If there's more of a tie up there, it'll be easier to actually work on this stuff if there's any kind of doubt about public or private ownership of property. I think it's going the right direction, but hopefully it'll go right fast enough because we're sick of hearing the politicians saying there's no quick fix. But they've been saying that for four years. There could have been a few incremental changes by this stage anyway. There's so many options, aren't there? Like Leisha Nealon talks in her article about yeah. the PJ McVeary Trust trying to buy properties and offering market value for empty properties mm. and it being refused. And again, because it's an agenda, build up properties yeah. in an area, be ready to make a massive development in the area. And now, the flip side of that, though, is is organisations like the PJ McVeary Trust, maybe on a smaller scale, if you go around Ireland locally, mm. lots of what would have been kind of the the groups running the, the local men's homeless shelter now own about 30 or 40 properties that the often local Local authorities are funding the purchase of these and they're like they're mm. small housing agencies now essentially which is why you don't see rough sleepers on the streets of you know Kilkenny or Carlow or Tullamore the way you would see maybe in Dublin but then then why aren't we developing that like I arrived from Monaghan to Dublin this morning with two, my two teenage kids and we walked along by the Gaiety Theatre there was and no they've coach, never yeah. they've never seen this like I was just saying look yeah. um, people sleeping on the ground like mm. you know nothing like that happens in Monaghan yeah. thank God but there there are solutions and we've got to start looking at them and the mm. government need to take some action and listen I think it's a no brainer a tax on empty properties that they can use to build new properties or take over the old properties it's an easy one and streamline the derelict sites orders maybe having them with the local authorities isn't the right thing they might need to go more nationally so there can be more coordination but there is legislation on that they have lists 
and there is no point just leaving them empty. Get something done with them. Uh, Gary, it's, 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 it's obviously been having some sort of impact on uh, on government. That is an extraordinary headline on the front of the Indo uh, Cabinet and Social Housing Class War. Yeah, in I inverted was just commas, about and that. then the following page: blood on the floor as we're all up over social uh, housing. And this is uh, Fine McGrath telling Fine Gaelers that they should stop looking down their noses on um, social housing and council housing. And Michael Ring said he was proud to have been brought uh, up and born in a council house. And there's a, a long story from Philip Ryan uh, about it. But there is clearly tensions in terms of... Uh, yeah, because this was the criticism, obviously, from opposition that was levelled at, at Leo Varadkar and Owen Murphy and, Owen and Murphy, the little yeah. cabal that, uh, that these guys Posh were boys, too posh yeah. to, to really care about uh, working class problems. And it seems those, uh, it's not just the opposition. It's the opposition within Cabinet. Yeah, and it's kind of ridiculous with all this kind of t- posh you know, talk of posh things and, you know, people's backgrounds and everything. Last I checked, we're a classless society, allegedly. So what's all this nonsense about people's backgrounds? Either they can do their job or they can't and work on it from that basis. Well, I've never thought Ireland was a classless society. Well, we like to think we are. We might like to think of it, clearly, clearly or not. Um, You know, it's very interesting. There's no history of the working class in Ireland. Unlike, you know, E.P. Thompson's famous history of the English working class and all across Western Europe and the United States. And But here in Ireland, it's it's a strange academic lacunae. Uh, but there is class and class is an important element, you know, but, you know, as an old Whedon wrote... Because in Irish Ireland, trans- isn't it, none of us think we're working class. When you'd survey, everyone thinks they're middle class. Well, I grew up in a very working class household in the middle of uh, of Cork City. Neither of my parents went to, to secondary school and, you know, we we didn't live, we weren't like walking around with no shoes or whatever. But it was, <laughs> a, it a was shoebox middle yeah, of but it was, it was, a, you know, it was an ordinary up or working class uh, living, you know, and, uh, and and we were proud, you know, to be from that class. And my parents were very, that was very, had a very good job afterwards. Uh, but the long and the short of it is that yeah, those who move on, like, you know, Clearly, very middle class, uh, working in a you know in a public institution and being very well paid for it. But that tension still exists, I think, in Irish uh, in Irish society uh, to this day. And also, if, if, if you look at the river that divides this city, that was one of the issues about you know and Murphy being on the south side and posh boys on the south side as distinct from you know posh working class people on the north side. Yeah, all right. But remember, it's not just social housing; mm. it's affordable housing, and I think that's in the articles that are in there. It is it's young people talking about having to pay a thousand euro and more. For for a room and a house mm. at miles from where they work. So it, it's a bigger, it's absolutely to get a people who are homeless, but also to maintain people to be able to afford to live in the cities and, and big towns. Well, some politicians like to think they have a monopoly on, you know, people's suffering. And I don't think that's really the case. I think that's what the Fianna Gaelers are really objecting to, that, you know, that these are, you know, heartless, cruel, right-wing ideologues as they've been portrayed for, for many years. And I think that's at the heart of this tension in, in cabinet uh, uh, over the last few days. All right, Gary, Jennifer and Alona are staying with me. Back after this quick break. On the record. On News Talk. It's Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock today. 53106 is the text number that costs 30 cent or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cuddy. He with me in studio, Dr. Alona Duffy, Jennifer Kavanagh, Gary Murphy. Uh, we were talking a little bit of politics before the break. We're going to talk more politics now. Various opinion polls in the paper. There's a political party poll. There's a pre- presidential poll. But there's a story as well on the front page of the Sunday Business Post about the last presidential election. We're going all the way back to 2011 and front line and all that. Uh, Pat Kenny, what RTE did could be perceived as a cover-up and that's a quote 
quote from an email that Pat allegedly wrote uh, in the fallout uh, to all of this when he was still at RTE before he came here to News Talk. Um, and it, it forms the basis of quite extensive coverage in the Business Post today about what happened that night on Frontline in 2011, about, uh, I suppose, that the kind of the chronology of the tweet coming in, being sent down to studio, being read out on air, uh, and everything that happened in the aftermath. I know, Jennifer, you, you've looked at this in some detail. What, what's your take, first of all, I suppose, on the coverage in today's papers? Is there anything new in it? Uh, no, not really, to be honest with you, because uh, I did a conference paper, which subsequently became a book chapter in an academic text on media regulation. And I mean, when they looked through it internally in RT, because they had all their own reports and everything, it was a changing time in political debate because Twitter was new. They were trying to incorporate it into the whole studio setting to try and make it reactive and everything. And bear, everyone forgets as well that night there was huge flooding in Dublin. So half the audience that should have been there yeah, I actually couldn't forgot actually until make I read it. The yeah. piece today, yeah. Yeah, and um, what they did emphasise was that if they are going to continue with putting in tweets, I mean, everyone who was on Twitter knew that was a fake account, to be perfectly honest with you. And the way I would personally read it, in my opinion, is more to do with the fact of how he dealt with the question as opposed to what happened. Now, what they're saying in the Sunday Business Post is that they knew it was a fake tweet. But I think it was David Cochran within five minutes of that tweet being read out. He had practically told all of Twitter, I, I think this this account could be some way dodgy. So it was out there. But I think that if you look now political debates, they will rarely bring in tweets because they are just so afraid of it coming in. They'll just leave yeah. people to deal with the candidates' Twitter accounts themselves. And they're, it's a pity in a way because it was a way of getting good questions and good reactions. But with Ireland, with our defamation laws, with the payouts you can get from it, you have to be so careful. If not in any way, just the chilling effect of thinking somebody's going to go after you if you read out something like that. The gist of the story basically is when the editorial team knew that the tweet was fake. Yeah. That, that, and that, and that, there's some confusion mm, in it. There still is. Yeah, in, uh, well, 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 Nobody even knows who sent that tweet to begin with anyway. No. Yeah, but there is also, there is a you know, division within, you know, with that team about whether the, the senior editor in charge was told by one of his um, more junior members of staff uh, that the tweet was fake and he said he didn't get this. But anyway, that, that, so that's the kind of the, yeah. the story. Mm. And uh, and then they have a, a reply from, from Pat Kelly saying he's not going to talk because he doesn't have access to, you know, this mail, whatever. Um, but, uh, it, 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 it's very interesting obviously because Mr Gallagher's now back on the yes. uh, yeah. on the ballot and got on the ballot very quickly I mean he only entered the race two weeks ago he was on the ballot really oh, officially uh, officially he was on the ballot really quickly uh, and we now have five candidates about the, the poll today showing Michael Lee at 67% I mean obviously people can fall as Sean Gallagher fell seven years ago but I mean it a would, complete vice versa turnaround I mean, from that, that so will this, do you think this will help Sean Gallagher's figures up you know that that sympathy thing will rise again everybody saying oh god look at how badly I think if was. anyone was going to support Sean Gallagher they would still have that sense of loyalty to him so it's probably transferring over to be honest with you though from looking at the opinion poll you've got Michael DeHiggins Sean Gallagher Gavin Duffy unnamed Sinn Féin party candidate and then Joan Freeman, Peter Casey, Jim O'Doherty. I would feel very bad if I was either of those three people that I'm getting beaten on an opinion poll by an unnamed by candidate. By Dina Ella. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but, but we can be sure that when we assume Lee and Ria will be nominated yeah. today that Sinn Féin will run a 
serious campaign like they're not going into it just for the sake of it obviously I'm not sure they expect to win but they will certainly expect to do better than Martin McGuinness did in 2011 and they will use this as a, as a run for the general election which is looming whenever it comes out or later this year or but next year 20 um, and so it will not be a coronation under any circumstances I know we have on the front page of the Sunday Times there's a story about that Sean Gallagher won't debate unless Michael D debates Michael D has said he will debate um, so, but, and, and campaigns matter in, in politics I mean on these numbers it would be extraordinary if the president wasn't re-elected but we know from anything that lately campaigns you know, can make a difference in all sorts of elections Jennifer how does the sitting president debate? Yeah that is going to be very very interesting because Eamon de Valera is the, was the only president to run for office again and be challenged. Yes. Now, he decided, you know, not to sully the office. I'm not going to get involved. Now, I don't think he was in very good health either at the time. But Michael D. Higgins is going to have to campaign with Sean Gallagher saying he's not going to do a, do a debate unless Michael D. Higgins is there. Michael D. Higgins is going to be curtailed by the office of president. Now, there's a, a bit of a, a barney going on amongst all the constitutional lawyers at the moment because some of us are saying... If Michael D. Higgins is going to be on TV addressing the nation, looking for re-election, would that be considered an address to the nation under the Constitution? So will the Cabinet have to approve what he's going to say in the debate? Now, some people are saying he's only going on to campaign, but it's just the first time this has happened in the Constitution and nobody really knows. But in terms of practical import, though, you know, if he's going down to the local GA team to have a cup of coffee with them to go, would you mind giving me a preference yeah. again? That'll be grand. But going on a big national debate, it's basically going to come down to, I'd say the Attorney General will have to say, is it or isn't it? And then he's still supposed to be above politics as the president. How much can he get into debating all the little issues? In the last issues? seven years, he wasn't above politics. Well, he he was treading that tightrope walk very, very nicely. And I mean, Mary McAleese did it. Mary Robinson he did it. He probably tiptoed over the line a couple of times. I, I think he held it just, just he, he about right. Just over the line, but I mean, and scampered back again. Maybe, <laughs> but I mean, this idea that Michael D. Higgins was some sort of a radical president is, I think, you know, bunkum. Uh, do, why you know that the establishment are happy with Michael D. Higgins is that they're all supporting him. Yeah. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Labour Party. Uh, I think that tells you everything you need to know. I, I would slightly disagree with my uh, learned colleague. I mean, it's an election. It's a campaign. I think yeah. constitutional laws are obsessing over this. But my view would be that Michael D. will campaign and that'll be it. But again, as well, will this debate, because it ends up being the, the, on, the RT one tends to be the big one. And I suppose these debates have been hyped up so much. We've seen it in the States with Trump and Hillary, you know, how did they perform? What way has it swung the, the, the vote? What way is it going to affect things? Is it really going to make that much of a difference this time when Michael T is so far ahead? And the more so, candidates, the better for him because the less he has to say, like he said yeah, very little in 2011. The so, yeah. uh, I'm sure Jennifer, you'll have some students WIT now who'll be assuming that at some stage this year there'll be a question on an exam paper about someone challenging oh, the... <laughs> I had a chat with him last week. They know what's going on. <laughs> Uh, there is that is that opinion poll is in the paper putting Michael D as I said at sixty seven percent. It's not the only opinion poll. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I just want to mention they have one on, on the, the kind of the state of the parties more broadly, Gary. And the the narrative certainly last night when this was released yesterday evening by the Business Post, they put the figures out themselves online. Mm-hmm. Was that it was kind of further bad news for Fianna Fáil and that this line of kind of attacking. 
uh, Leo Varadkar for being all spin and no substance was now falling into the kind of the category of you know the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and accept, expecting a different, different result. result yeah I mean 11 points is a lot Fianna Fáil are 22% Fianna Gael are 33 I would say November 2015 Fianna Fáil were 9 points behind Fianna Gael when Enda Kenny wanted to go to the country and was talked out of by Joan Burton three months later barely a percent in February uh, so campaigns as I said matter but these are I mean the trouble for Fianna Fáil is they've been consistently poor they're down from 25% uh, and I mean it's not great news for Sinn Féin either who are at 14% down from 16 and it just goes to show people seem to like independence because the, the first preference vote for independence is actually up yeah, 13% up from 9 for the uh, independent candidates which probably gives some sucker to those in cabinet Shane Ross Fianna McGrath who we mentioned earlier um, and then we have a long Labour again 6% I mean not quite on life support but not far uh, not far off it now on these numbers the Taoiseach still must consider at some stage I might go to the country I don't think he won't make the same mistake that Ender did will he? he I wouldn't be talked out of so. it I mean and uh, there's no there's no expectation that these figures are going to change dramatically at least I would think that's the thinking in, in Fine Gael and I mean if you have a chance to go and if not quite get an overall majority but, but a chance to make a chance to form a coalition government uh, then you might might be tempted to take it Alright Gary mentioned Shane Ross there I'm sure you'll be seeing him on the front pages of the papers with his arms around various gold medal winners <laughs> from the World Rowing Championships he loves that he's worse than Charlie uh, then the next few days we'll be speaking about some of those gold medals in about half an hour's time with Richie McCormack from Off the Ball uh, right now we'll take a quick break uh, Dr. Lona Duffy GP in Monaghan Medical Director of North East Stock on Call Gary Murphy Professor of Politics at Dublin City University and Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh Law Lecturer in Watford IT Expert in the area of Constitutional Law of course as you just heard thank you all very much for coming in to me this morning back after this On the Record On the Record on News Talk.